Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you very much for tuning in. Before I introduce my guest for episode 82, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast, which is called A Gift from Adversity. And it's by Julie Love. And it's available on Amazon. The subtitle of my book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. And after I experienced all of this, I was actually having a lot of speech engagement. And then a lot of people asked if I had a book, and I didn't. So I decided to publish it. In 2020, this came out in public. And after that, I got a lot of messages from all over the world, sharing, people sharing their adversities. In 2022, at the beginning of this year, I decided to bring these voices out forefront about adversities, but not only that, the tools people use to overcome and a gift that came from it. And I'm very, very excited that I have gotten 82 episodes as of today, and guests are from all over the world, and I'm very grateful. So tonight, we have Chris Mitchell. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for tuning in. Well, thank you so much for having me this evening. It's an honor to be here. Wonderful. So, Chris, can you tell our audience who you are, where you're coming in from, and what you do, and if you have a website, social media, etc.? Sure, I'll be happy to. My name is Chris Mitchell. I kind of have the also the nickname of the It Doesn't Define Me guy because I've been through a lot of my life. We're going to probably talk about some of that this evening. I'm coming to you live from my home office in the beautiful area of Webb City, Missouri. You probably never heard of that, but you may have heard of Joplin, Missouri. And if you've not heard of that, that's in the four-state area near the border of Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas and Kansas here in the great U.S. of A. I do have a website. Actually, I have two. My website is all about me. This guy right here is called thechrismitchell.com. T-H-E-C-H-R-I-S-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L.com. And from that site, you can find me uh, links to my social media, including Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I also have my own business, which is um, hashtag define yourself. And that website is defineyourself.us, D-E-F-I-N-E-Y-O-U-R-S-E-L-F.us. And from that website, you can find the social media links for our Facebook group, our Facebook page, uh, our LinkedIn business page, as well as our YouTube channel. And I'm great. I'm just so honored to be here tonight. I am a motivational uh, self-published author. I've written a book called It Doesn't Define Me, where I share my story of overcoming uh, an ischemic stroke to my spinal cord that robbed me of the ability to run, walk, or even stand. The book's available on Amazon. It's a great place to buy stuff, especially at Christmas. It's a great Christmas gift. And I'm a freelance writer, blogger, virtual speaker, and I host uh, a podcast called The Successful and Disabled Podcast. So that's a little bit about me. Well, thank you so much, Chris. People, please check out the chrismichel.com and define yourself. .us. .us. 
wonderful. All right, so let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience, what was your adversity, Chris? Well, I had several, to be honest with you about it. I was born with some birth defects um, that were caused by my mom being exposed to the German measles back in the day. I was born with cataracts. I was born with a constricted aorta. As I grew older, it was very apparent that I had a severe speech impediment. And I also had ADHD that um, uh, led to me being asked to find education at four different schools, two K through 12 schools, and two colleges asked me to go elsewhere. And later on in my life, I, as I kind of alluded to in my book, I survived an ischemic stroke to my spinal cord that robbed my ability to run, walk, or even stand. So yeah, I've had a little bit of everything. I, I mean, you can call it neurodiverse for ADHD. Some people call it learning disability. I'm visually impaired. I'm legally blind. My vision is 2200 in my left and 2300 in my right. I can't read out of my right eye. I obviously have a physical disability because of the ischemic stroke to my spinal cord. So I can have a little bit of every type of disability you could have out there. And if I'm not really careful and I don't turn down the music when I listen to the 80s music in my headphones, I'm also going to have a hearing impairment at one of these days. So I got to be careful about that. So Chris, thank you so much for sharing that. And let's dissect just little by little. I know you shared a lot with us, a lot of information with us. So let's start with your birth. Um, so you said your mother had some disease, measles or something? Uh, she was exposed to the German measles. She was never sick a day during the pregnancy, but she did pass along to me in the womb. Um, unbeknownst to her, what we believe happened, she was a physical education teacher, health instructor at a high school. And we think one of the kids came to school that day with the German measles and she was exposed to it accidentally. So she was never sick, but she was exposed to it and, I, and it affected me during the uh, time I was in the womb in development. Wow. So when you were born, um, can you dissect a little bit versus like normal baby in a U.S. situation, what was the most difficult thing as you were developing as a baby? When I was born, I had a constricted aorta, which is a narrowing of an artery that pumps blood to or from your heart. I can't remember which direction the arteries go. Somebody who's a doctor could tell you better about that. And that required a lot, uh, well, several surgeries, during the first month or two of my life. I don't remember any of them, but that's what my parents told me about. And I was visually impaired and that probably did not cause much problems at birth, but uh, we have somewhere stored around here. Uh, my very first pair of glasses that I wore when I was like a baby or even one years old to help strengthen my eyes. So for me, um, the, 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 the constricted aorta was really not that big of a problem uh, most of my childhood. It, uh, it just, I ran a little bit slower than my other friends. My vision, yeah, it was an obstacle to a normal sighted person because the best way to describe it, they explained it to me, is I something you can see 20, 200 miles, uh, not miles, 200 feet away. You can see 200 miles, you're incredible. Yeah, 200 feet away, I have to be 20 feet away from it to see it as clearly as you do. And I have a little cloudiness in my eyes, at least compared to people who don't have um, what what I had was cataracts. 
I don't notice it because to me, I was born this way. It's clear. It's fine. It's normal to me. But if you woke up with it tomorrow morning, it would be like looking through a um, dense fog uh, if you had my vision for a morning. So that's kind of how it impacted me as a kid. I didn't let it stop me from doing anything. I rode a bike. I climbed trees. I played on the youth soccer team. I've driven a car and I've flown a plane. So I haven't really let any of that um, affect me. Wow. So growing up with disability, I know you mentioned that it really didn't affect you. Say when you went to elementary school or middle school, high school, did you experience any discrimination or any bullying? Uh, I got teased a lot uh, in school. Kindergarten, first and second grade, I went to the Missouri School for the Blind, a wonderful school. And after second grade, they asked me to go somewhere else because of my ADHD. But I rode a school bus and on the side of the school bus in big letters was special school district. And back in the day when uh, I was riding that, a lot of kids would tease me and call me the R word, which I know we're not supposed to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, call me retarded. And, and, and so I did receive some of that name calling and, and all, you might call it bullying, but I would not call it exactly bullying as much as when the kids said that, that made me mad and I acted out and that got, and then I got in trouble for my behavior. So I think they were kind of pushing my buttons to get me to act out and get in trouble. And they thought it was funny, which is not. And I have some responsibility in that because I did not respond to it as well as I should have. But I was a kid and I didn't like to be called the R word. So I, I experienced that in school. But as far as discrimination and all, uh, no, because most of the time, because of my ADHD, I spend at least once, sometimes twice a day in the principal's office. So I, uh, and there was not a lot of time that people could discriminate against me because I was having discussions about my behavior with the principal. So I know nowadays I feel there are more A's for, um, students, um, with this disability and then um all kind of equipment in public school um special ed teacher on the staff can you explain when you are growing up was was there enough aid but like did you feel you had enough support in the school system or not really uh, well in the missouri school for the blind there was a lot of great resources there including books in Braille, which I, they taught me a little bit of Braille. I remember A, B, C, D in Braille. I can't do anything else in Braille. But they had large print books, and I needed large print books, and they did help a lot. And back in, and when I was in school, which was <laughs> dinosaur days for, to the kids today, um, there was not a lot out there because I went to school before the ADAs and uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So there wasn't much out there. Now, my parents, we had this old rotary dial phone, which shows you how old I am. And they got this cardboard cutout to go around the area that you you put your finger in and dial the phone and, and to make large uh, numbers larger for me to see. And I, and that was great that it was there, but I took it off and I, I put it down and I told my parents, I don't want this. And they asked me why. And I said, the world is not going to adapt to me. I got to learn to adapt to it. So there were a lot of aids out there. I I declined using them because I was stubborn. I was bullheaded and I wanted to adapt to the world because I knew back before the ADA, the world was not going to be made accessible for me. When I did get kicked out of high school, 
um, for my ADHD. I wound up in special education, and that was one of the best things that happened to me. We had great teachers that were, were kids that uh, had behavior problems, ADHD, and I, and and the resource room program was awesome. And I had a teacher in ninth grade named Mrs. Lyons. I was in her class all day because I was expelled from my school. And whenever any of us misbehaved in the class, she had a mantra she would say. And that was, I like you, I don't like your behavior. I like you, I don't like your behavior. She would say that repeatedly until that de-escalated the situation. And that changed my life. And because before, whenever I misbehaved, I heard I was such a bad kid. Why do you behave badly? You're such a horrible uh, student. And that tore down my self-esteem. But when Mrs. Lyons said that, it was the first time I realized my behavior did not have to define who I was. And it changed my life. And because of Mrs. Lyons, we're doing this interview from my home office instead of me being in a jail cell over a phone that's being monitored by a um, warden. So uh, it, I, that was the best thing that happened to me. That uh, We had some awesome teachers in the special education programs in St. Louis that really cared and made a difference in our lives. And I... I truly appreciate what they did for me. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. So we definitely gonna save some of that for the question number two, but let's actually talk a little bit of your adult life that now you graduated from high school. And then I'm very sorry that school didn't understand exposure. That's so awful. Like, like how they are them that, you know, but back in the day, maybe, they had a lack of understanding. And just to share with you, Chris, um, by person to person. Um, so I have experienced these adversities back in Japan in 80s and nobody understood. I did not have the disability, but I did have the disadvantage of being in a dysfunctional family and then constant abuse and so the mental health was broken and then absolutely no understanding to that, for that. And then basically I got kicked out from my house. I became homeless because my mom thought I was just reckless and crazy instead of getting some help. Um, so I feel like the way that household or school system or society kicks people out because of the disability of whatever the range is, I think, that is really devastating. Yes, it can be very devastating. But I would say for, uh, on behalf of the school district that expelled me in ninth grade, I had that coming to me because I kicked a principal. I brought that upon themselves. It was not them discriminating against me because of my disability. I, I, I acted out in the morning. I was supposed to go to the principal's office. I refused. I did not want Saturday morning detention. He came to the classroom and I thought kicking him would scare him and he would leave. I was wrong. And I, I got expelled and they did the right call. And I'm glad that they did because it changed my life for the better. I see. So um, let's talk about your college. Did you go to college after high school? Yes, I did for many, many moons. And I got expelled from college. <laughs> so it was a reoccurring theme in my life. What was your major? What were you studying? I was studying um, radio broadcasting and uh, computer science. Those were my two fields of interest. And then when you uh, adult, um, what was your first job? My first job, let's see, my first job. 
I guess you could say my first job was working at the college radio station in St. Louis, Missouri, at KC, KCFV. And that was my first job. But my first paid job occurred when I moved from St. Louis to California. And I was working in a computer lab for the college there. I was a computer lab assistant. And I worked with the students in the who were taking computer classes and helped them with any computer problems they had. So that was my first paid job. That's really significant that you overcame these challenges and then, you know, be able to teach somebody and then um, adopt. That's really great. So you'd mentioned something about spinal. Um, so what was that during the adult adversity that you mentioned? Yes, uh, at the age of 36, that constricted aorta I mentioned earlier, uh, that I was born with, and was narrowing some more. They had done some surgeries, but what they put in to make it stay wider, um, I know that's not medical, but it was uh, starting to collapse. So we had to do an ascending to descending aortic bypass. And during that surgery, something went wrong. We don't know what, they're not gonna tell me because they don't wanna get sued. I survived an ischemic stroke to my spinal cord, which to lay people, it's a stroke because of the way it affects your body you have um, lack of use of portions of your body and, and, and similar effects that you would have from a stroke. But in the medical community, it's a spinal cord injury. So in, in essence, I was paralyzed from the waist down. I regained a lot of that because the nerves have started to regenerate. I can walk using a rollator and, and, and other things we can talk about later. But uh, I did lose the ability to run, walk, or even stand for a, a, a time in my life. And it was a very challenging time because when this happened, I was engaged to my fiance at that time. And, and you know, that could have destroyed the relationship. But uh, I was fortunate enough to be engaged to a very strong woman who um, stood by me day and night and she slept in the hospital with me and took care of me for two weeks. And we did wind up getting married, but it was a very challenging timing because uh, when it happened, uh, the happily ever after that you're envisioning as a young engaged couple was in jeopardy and it did change what we had envisioned our lives to be. But it was a difficult time in my life. So was that like a heart surgery that you had? Yes, it was a cardiac surgery, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then it effect, it kind of failed, maybe doctor failed the surgery part of it. And then you had a stroke during the surgery? I, yes, well, I believe yes. But what I can say is I walked into the um, um, pre-op to get prepared for the surgery. And when I woke up in the um cardiac intensity care unit several hours after the surgery they had me to try to stand up and walk around to prevent pneumonia and that's when I fell to the floor and that's when we discovered something had went wrong and we discovered that I had the ischemic stroke to my spinal cord so did it actually happen during surgery I think it did but I don't want to say that as a fact because maybe it happened while I was in recovery I don't know for sure but it was during that time between um, being put under and waking up in the CVICU several hours after surgery. Wow. That is really devastating. It was life-changing. And how long were you not able to walk? Well, uh, it's been going on 20 years and still going. Uh, 
If I walk, I have to use mobility aids, which we can talk a little bit more about later. But I don't walk like, you know, before the surgery where, you know, I just get up and walk. I have to use something to help with my balance. So uh, the first, let's see, the first few years, I was mainly using a wheelchair to get around. And I started, you know, grabbing other stuff around the house and did a little bit of um, moving around, holding on for balance, but not a lot. And then, you know, over, about seven years later, after my insurance had given up my rehabilitation, I taught myself how to, to, to walk in a sense where I could use, you know, mobility devices. And I'll be happy to share that with you that secret in a, a little bit later, if you, if you want. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Um, I've had several guests on my podcast who lost the mobility due to the accidents and it's just so devastating. I can't even imagine the feeling of not being able to walk. Prior to being able to walk, you will not bow with it. And then due to the surgery, it affected pretty much for a long time. And how was your mental health around that time when you discovered that something went wrong and then you were having difficulty of walking? Well, um, when, when we first discovered there was a problem and they did the MRI and mentioned it was a, uh, it was a stroke in the spinal cord, I, I tuned out because I had this belief, which is wrong. But at the time, I believed if I have a spinal cord injury, I'm not going to get any better. And I refused to think that. And I went into denial. And I thought, um, as soon as they take the catheter out, I'll be able to walk. No problem. They took that out, and I wasn't. But, you know, what? And this happened in uh, end of July. And I thought, you know, by Labor Day, I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So I went through denial for a while. And then after Labor Day, when I was still not walking and I had to be in a wheelchair, it started to set in this is going to take longer to recover from. And so I, I was a little bit depressed, but I had this mantra or, or this expression that I, I wanted to um, focus on. And that was, I wanted to be optimistic and realistic. I was optimistic and I still am to this day that there will be a day I will be able to walk again. But realistically, that may not happen. And I can accept both of those. But yeah, I went through denial first. And then I went through some depression and worked through acceptance. And when something like this happens to somebody, it, you often go through, because you lost something, an ability, a part of you, a part of your life, you go through the five stages of grief. And that's uh, not just when you lose a loved one. It can happen when you have a uh, life-changing a life-altering injury like I did. So I went through the five stages. And uh, there, most of the time, I'm pretty optimistic and uh, accepting of it. But there's still some days that it gets to me. And I get a little bit depressed about it. But um, after, right after it happened, like I said, uh, denial and um, some uh, depression and fear that I would never be able to go home. And my, my wife and I would not be able to be married and have that happily ever after we both dreamed of. What is five stage of grief? Okay, I'm glad you asked me that. And I'm also scared that you asked me that because I wish I had all five of them memorized <laughs> and I don't. So my apologies. But I can tell you that they include, um, you know, denial, bargaining, 
Uh, like, uh, you know, God, if you give me my ability to walk back, uh, walk again, I will never use your name in vain again or whatever deal you want to try to cut with somebody to do that. <laughs> or doctor, if you get me to walk again, I'll buy you a new golf clubs, whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. Uh, bargaining, acceptance, denial, those kind of things. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit of all of those uh, mixed together. We had some drop and technical difficulties. I'm waiting for Chris to come back. And then we were just talking about, uh, there you go. I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't know either. Yes, but um, I think we can save this still because the live is saying 24 minutes, still 25 minutes. So we can keep going. Um, so in um, you said, Denial and bargaining, and then what's the next one? Well, the, the, uh, like I said, I don't know all five of them off the top of my head. And my apologies for that. But I know <laughs> denial's in there, bargaining, acceptance, um, probably some depression, anger. Those are some that are in there. And you don't always go through all five in the right order. And you can do several of them at the same time, and you bounce back and forth. And But that is um, what people go through when they lose a loved one or lose an ability. And I'm going to memorize those because I'm sure somebody's going to ask me that again. And I'm going to have a better answer next time. My apologies that I don't have a great one right now. Don't worry about it. But thank you so much for explaining about the mental health stage. And were you, uh, when you are depressed or angry about your disability, um, not being able to walk, and then, like, did you feel, like, really devastated? Like, how do you describe, I know you mentioned some of it, like depression and stuff, mm -hmm. but can you remember, like, maybe devastation and then a horrific feeling of fear, maybe nightmares or like even during the day? Yeah, well, um, yes, I can answer that. I, I just did a real quick search here and the five phases are, um, or yeah, phases are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So I, I got those, hey, I did that from memory. I just Googled it right here. Um, but your question about uh, what I was going through and uh, how I felt and did I have nightmares, I, I I had a lot of fears. In fact, I, my biggest fear was, is this going to affect my, my upcoming marriage? Am I going to lose my fiance over this? And fortunately, I did not. And I, I did not have a lot of nightmares at the hospital. Now, when they transferred me to the rehabilitation hospital, I had never been a rehabilitation hospital. I saw things that I never saw before. I was not prepared to see. I saw people who were in situations that they could not even verbally communicate and it really freaked me out a little bit and some of the noises that i heard at night from people uh, um, being in pain or whatever kept me awake at night because you could hear them echo through the hallway it was it was a little bit 
um, scary to me at, at that point. Uh, and, and it was very sobering too, because at the hospital I was at, I was in the first floor. And the first floor were people who were going to go home within 30 days. Second floor were people who were going to go home, maybe not in 30 days, but they eventually go home. And the third floor were for patients who were in a prolonged vegetative state, and they probably will never go home. And when that was explained to me, it was a very sobering reality to me that I, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, I could have been in an event. I could have never woken up from that surgery. And I, I, it made me realize how fortunate I was. I, I prayed for the people who were on the third floor. And, but it was very sobering and yet scary at the same time. But it also made me realize I was very fortunate and grateful that there was a day I would be able to go home. Chris, I can't imagine the fear and then devastation. And again, I want to share a little bit with you that when I had a C-section with my daughter and then when I was under general anesthesia, which is supposed to not happen because the epidural failed, four days later after I woke up and then I was going to lactation class or something and I completely like don't remember and then I was in the um, procedure room again and they told me that I had spinal fluid leakage due to the failure of the spinal um, code injury they, they basically created a hole so they have to take my blood from my arm and then inject it back to my spinal cord again um, and it was so painful. And then I had excruciating pain. I actually got discharged after my daughter was born, but I went back to the hospital like the day after. And then um, for two weeks or so after my daughter was born, I, I just couldn't go from here to here without screaming. Mm -hmm. um, just the waist down, excruciating pain. I've never experienced that. Um, so. But that was, you know, that eventually like went away, but it was very scary because obviously when you are under the procedure, you don't know what's going on. And then, you know, you never know. Like, so I kind of could relate, it, relate a little bit. And then, but it, it just shocks you. And then it just realizes like how vulnerable you can be. Very true, yeah. Um, and when you're in a hospital and you're having procedure done, you're not in control. The doctors are in control. The nurses are in control. And for some people, that's very hard to let go of that control because they like to have that control over their life. And they want to know that they're safe. And they, they're trusting people. Some of them, they don't know all that well to protect them and to watch out for them and take care of them. And it can cause a lot of anxiety for people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just had a surgery in July and I was so anxious because of my um, previous C-section experience and I was just so scared, so anxious. I'm so scared from my procedure. Um, anyone mentioned surgery to me, I will run away, far away from them. I'm, I'm petrified uh, of surgery. I'm getting a little bit better about the idea because, hey, I'm getting older. I'm probably going to have this surgery sooner or later. But for many years, um, don't, I told doctors, don't even mention that word if you don't want to see me dart out of your office. 
Yes, absolutely. We can develop the PTSD from that. Mm. But anyways, Chris, I really appreciate you sharing from birth to now and then all the adversities. And I, I really appreciate all of our guests so far for sharing these adversities because this is something that we don't usually talk about. But my goal really is to normalize this difficult conversation so we have a platform that's safe and also people can relate and then get encouraged. Now, I want to switch to the second question, which is the the tools that you use to overcome. And before we move on to that, I want to share with you and our audience that this is one of my favorite part of the podcast because all of my guests share so many wonderful tools that is so useful to many of the situations. And I would love you to share some of the tools that truly worked to overcome some of your adversity. Well, one of the tools I kind of mentioned earlier, I had my ischemic stroke to my spinal cord and I was not able to walk. And I had to get around in a wheelchair or a um, scooter. And, you know, when you have an injury like that, you're in um, physical therapy for a while, outpatient physical therapy, occupational therapy, all of that stuff. And, you know, for a while I had to use what's called a transfer board, which is a rectangular piece of wood with a couple of holes at the end for handles. And you put it underneath where your bottom is in the wheelchair, put the other edge on like a car seat and you would transfer over. But I graduated beyond that and and, and all. Now, during when you are, <clears throat> excuse me, in physical therapy, your insurance pays for it. But usually when you have an injury, injury like I did, you have what's called spontaneous recovery for like six months to a year. It depends on the person, but you're going to see the most recovery in that time. And then it starts to slow down. Well, when mine slowed down, my insurance company decided to no longer pay for it. And I interpreted that as my insurance company is giving up on me, but I am not giving up on me. So I started to, to do physical therapy at home. I had a, and, and what I'm going to share, if you are physically disabled, Make sure if you try this in your home, you do it safely. I don't want anyone getting hurt. But there was, I had a galley kitchen. And I would wheel in there and I would put my hands on the counter and push up and teach myself how to stand like they did in physical therapy. I had a long, narrow hallway from the living room to my bathroom. And I would put my hands on the wall and I would hold on to it, well, well kind of bounce off of it, and to work on my balance while I was... Um, moving around to, to strengthen my legs. Then there was this one day my wife and I went to Target. And normally she unloads the wheelchair and I would get in it. She would push me through the store and push me back out to the car. Well, for previous trips, I saw these really cool scooters they had in Target. Now, obviously I have one of my own, but we don't take that everywhere. And I wanted to ride that scooter in the store. There's no point in my wife to unload the wheelchair, wheel me into the store. I get in the scooter. She takes the wheelchair back and she does that in reverse to get me out to the car. So we pulled into a Target parking lot, a spot. And there's this red Target cart. And I said to my wife, Kim, go get that cart. She brought it over to me to the passenger door. I grabbed under the handle of it and I put my arm, I held on tightly and I slowly put my foot, feet on the ground. And I, it was not pretty, it was painful, but I pushed that cart into the store. And because I did that, that was how I taught myself I could use a walker. 
and I got myself a walker and I started using that for my own mobility independence so I could start walking places. And I started by walking short distances from the car into church or any other place I went to. And once I got comfortable with that, I got myself a rollator, which is a walker with four wheels. A walker traditionally has two wheels in the front and tennis balls in the back. So I got myself a rollator and I've been using a rollator for I guess 12 years now to get around um, short distances. Now, longer distances, I do use my scooter because I have a cardiac issue and I don't want to fall. But that's that's one of the tools I've used to overcome the challenges um, that have been associated with um, my physical disability. But the tool that I've used the most in all of my challenges has been up here in my brain, in my mindset that I am not going to let anything that happened to me in my life or any challenge, obstacle, adversity, limitation, or setback, basically any disability, define who I am. I'm going to go out there and define myself. It doesn't define me. And that it can be anything. It can be my visual disability. It can be my ADHD. Anything that I mentioned tonight. It could be any of those things. And that mindset has been the greatest tool in knowing and believing I can achieve whatever I want. And that's the best tool anyone has. And it doesn't cost anything. It's in your brain. It's right there. You can start doing that today. Using that tool to uh, and the self-talk to tell yourself, if I can, if I can dream it, I can achieve it. If I can believe it, I can achieve it. Chris, thank you so much. And I feel like I want to talk about your teacher, Miss Lyons. Yes, Mrs. Lyons. Mrs. Lyons. And I feel like she really instilled you a self-esteem and then bouncing back from adversity at young age. Let's talk a little bit about her and how she may be changed and then how important it is as a child or as a person who's going through adversities, not only disabilities, but any challenges for them to not say you're retarded or you're dumb or you're stupid, but or um, behavioral issues to straight out to that but I like you, but I don't like your behavior. Is that what she said? I like you. I don't like your behavior. Yes, that's what she said. So I like you, but I don't like what you're doing. Right. I, I like you. I love you. But what you're doing is what I don't love right now. Right. Yeah, she would say that all the time uh, mm -hmm. to us when we, when any of us, when there were eight of us in the classroom, when any of us acted out, that was the way she de-escalated the situation. And it made us separate our, our behavior from our identity. And it, at least for me, I'm not going to speak for the other students. It gave me the, the reality of the belief that I can define who I am. My behavior is just an aspect of me that I, if I don't like, I can change it. If others don't like, I can change that. I am an individual. I can do whatever I want. I'm a likable, lovable person. Just my behavior is a problem. And that really did change my life. And when we start to see ourselves as a, a wonderful person, a caring person, a, a person worth being loved or a person worth being valued, uh, instead of 
uh, negative stuff, whether that be behavior issue or any other adversity in our life. We separate ourselves from that adversity and not let that adversity define who we are. We can achieve anything. And because Mrs. Lyons used those words with me, that changed my life. And that's basically what I'm trying to tell people, that it doesn't define you. That it could be a university that does not have to define who you are. Yes, it may be a part of you, but it does not have to be a defining part of you. Yeah, you, we, we all go through bad things, but we don't have to let that dictate who we are. Because we're still wonderful, amazing people that are worth being loved and respected. And we deserve that. And, and anything that's detracting from that, we can um, eliminate in our lives. Chris, that's such an important message to you and to us. It's just so not only hearing from somebody else, but to ourselves. So when we talk about self-sabotage, like you can even apply that. Like, you know, I love myself, but I don't love what I have been doing and accepting that. And I think a lot of times my struggle, for example, was this adversity that I mentioned in my book. These really define who I want I am, but I knew I wasn't that, but I didn't know how to separate myself from the adversity because that obviously became part of my identity. And but then I'm not that. I am I experienced that in the past, but I am not that. I am more than that. But that's hard to separate. And then like what you said, define. And that takes long time if there is no aid for that. There's no advice and no talk about it. And then you just struggle in your mind. Yeah, it can be very challenging if you don't have a great support system. And that's one of the things I encourage people to have that are struggling to have a good support system that's going to encourage them and, and be in their corner as they're trying to separate themselves from an adversity and self-identify as a worthwhile, lovable, um, cuddly type friendly person because you can't do this alone. I, I haven't. I mean, my wife has been by my side through um well, not my childhood, obviously. I didn't meet her until I was a, an adult, but she'd been through this uh, by my side through everything that um, I've been through with this uh, spinal cord injury. And, and that's given me strength because even though at times I still have my meltdowns, I had one actually an hour before we started this interview tonight, I was trying to find some Christmas gifts and I couldn't find them. I was getting frustrated and I had a meltdown. Even though I had that meltdown, which is not uncommon with... Um, ADHD at times, uh, she still loves me was because she she knows that I'm a wonderful person. That meltdown does not mean that who that that meltdown is not me. The the Romy is a wonderful, caring husband and somebody worth being loved and um, being around. That is so important, Chris, because everybody has. Okay, think about this: people get fever, people get sick say COVID-19, but it goes away, like you no know, flu, um, any bronchitis. And then people have no discrimination against you being physically sick. However, when you are mentally sick, say having a panic attack, meltdown, 
PTSD, mm -hmm. like acting up, people do have discrimination against that. Yeah, the the worst. I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but the one area uh, classification of disability that I think has the worst stigma on it is mental health issues. And and I don't know why, but in our society we have that here in the United States. Um, a very big stigma if you're depressed or feeling suicidal. Um, we often don't ask for help when we should because we're sh we're ashamed, we're embarrassed, we think we're going to be labeled and you know, a a a mentally disturbed or, or uh, mentally unbalanced or whatever. And that is hurting people. Um, because like we mentioned before, okay, let's say you have depression. I do have depression. Uh, I have seasonal affected depression. You don't, you can't tell it when I do these interviews because I used to work in radio and when you're on the air, you're upbeat. So you never see me have it on these kind of interviews, but I have that. But, uh, when you have those type of things, you got to remember that is just one aspect of you. That's not your entire identity and don't let it become that. And there's no shame in admitting for help. And I like to say this whenever this topic comes up here in the United States and Canada, if you are struggling with mental health and you feel depressed or possibly suicidal, you can call or text 988 from any phone to get help from the nearest suicide crisis center to your location and they will be happy to help you. And that's an important thing um, that we all know about because uh, I, I, whenever this conversation comes up, you never know who's listening. And I'd like to have that opportunity to tell people about 988. It's a free service and use it when you need it. And there's no shame in doing it. What would happen when you call 988? Like, is, would there be a counselor available? Like, what would happen? From my understanding, yes, there would be a trained counselor from a suicide prevention center um, talking to you on the phone, either, you know, traditionally or if you're texting back and forth, there'd be a trained um, suicide prevention or a counselor on the other end working with you. Uh, I've never had to use 988 or even the former um, toll-free number for suicide prevention. I have talked to um, several people who have, and this is what they've shared with me. So I can't give you firsthand experience, but that is what I do know about the program. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then I do know in our area, there's a Riverside Community um, Center where uh, they can be 24-7 mental health crisis uh, hotline, uh, even uh, in-home counselor that can come over the trained counselor who can talk to you through it. And it's interesting that how they perceive those calls are very different than the police, how they, um, you know, have code and then certain procedures that they have to go through and stuff. So 988 that you mentioned. Right. Thank you so much for that. And one more thing, Chris, when you are talking about tools, I like how you said about mindset. Um, so what kind of mindset that you want to reinforce people, especially when they face the disability? Well, victory, I believe, starts in your mind. And, and that is also in the movie Renaissance Man. That's kind of where I got the idea. But it's true. If you want to overcome anything, a, a disability, and, and, and when I say overcome, I don't mean become healed from that disability, but overcome it to the extent that that disability is not going to limit you. You're not going to believe what people tell you that you cannot do because you're disabled. I mean, I was told I cannot drive a car because of my vision. 
well, I, the truth is I cannot get a driver's license, but I have driven a car. You need to have in that mindset that you, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. And, and not, don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. When you start listening to other people tell you what you can and cannot do, it's like having a car. You got your own car and you gave somebody else the keys to the car. Now that person can decide when you go somewhere, where you go, all of that stuff. Don't hand over those keys to your car. Keep them in your own possession. You're the only one that can decide where you want to do go in life and what you can be. Don't let anyone else tell you that. Don't let that get in your mind. Somebody tells you you can't do something, that's just their opinion. That does not have to be your reality. So it starts in your mind. Filtering out the garbage that we are told because of our adversities or our disabilities and believing that we can achieve whatever we set our minds to. That is beautiful, beautifully said, Chris. Thank you so much for that. I was talking to somebody who is in a real, real estate business and then he's extremely wealthy. And then I asked him, can you teach me how to become a millionaire? And then not struggle financially. And then instead of him showing me how to buy a properties and stuff, he said, it has to start with your mind. You have to think that you're strong. You have to believe that you're beautiful. And then when you can't do that, you cannot be anything. And so he really taught me how to wake up and how to believe that I am strong and I'm beautiful, and that I am capable. And those are the things that people do not think that it's so important, but it is. And then I feel regardless of the disability or challenges or any adversities, eventually, like the people who can say anything to you you are the one who decide to take that to your heart, to your brain, or not. You have a power to disengage from whatever people think you are. And I learned that. And then I really appreciate you telling me the victory starts from your mind. Because self-sabotage is such a big problem. Because you can really, really sabotage your potential instead of leveraging your potential just on your own, even external pressures. And then when people prejudice against you because of your mobility or disability or adversity, that adds on. But again, it's, it really depends on you. Like what you said, victory starts from your mind. Right. Think of it this way. If you, what you eat affects your health, right? If you eat a lot of junk food, you're going to be in poor health. If you eat healthy stuff, which I should eat more healthy stuff, but that's my problem. You will have a healthier body and be able to do more. If you feed into your mind negative thoughts, you're not going to go anywhere. You got to only put into your brain positive thoughts, just like healthy food. And when you do that, you're going to be able to achieve more in your life. At least you're going to have the potential to. Because not only does that go in your mind and you believe it, you can't just stop there because that's just a dream. 
and and unless you wake up and actually start working for it, it's not going to go any further. But it does start with having positive thoughts going in your mind, positive self-talks. Just like eating, you got to eat that healthy stuff. You got to have positive self-talk if you really want to be successful in life. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Chris. And then coming from you, overcoming so many challenges, that makes it much heavier. And this is what I love about the podcast that I started. And I'm really appreciative of you being a part of this movement because really the goal is to normalize the conversation that's really difficult and destigmatize the mental health issues and the challenges that we face. If I believe this podcast can be uh, tools and then stepping stones or a gift, especially for our next generations to not suffer as much as we have suffered. Yeah, I met somebody who said, I want my ceiling. They were talking about, in this case, disabled advocacy, but it can apply to, to your program as well. I want my ceiling to be the next generation's floor. And I, I and that's always stuck with me, that what we do today, and we, especially the stuff that's on the internet, because it'll be there forever, folks, can help somebody else down the road. And what we're doing today, that could be someone's beginning. And I love that idea. Say it again. That if what we do today will be on the internet forever, and that could be somebody else's in the future, their beginning of their journey to success. Somebody's ceiling. Yes. Our our ceiling today is somebody else's floor. Yes. I've never heard of that. Because the analogy is you've heard of uh, like the glass ceiling. Um, forgive me for the wording of this, but women often use that to say they're trying to break through the glass ceiling to get more equality in in business and profession. So the expression comes from that. Uh, We all have ceilings above us, how far we can reach. And the people who want to make their ceiling, what they can reach today, be the starting point for the next generation. That's why they say our ceiling today will be somebody else's floor in in the future. Oh, I love that. I've never heard of this. Because when you think of a house, your ceiling on the first floor is the um, floor for the second floor. I see. So what you're saying is this disability, adversity, that is the ceiling that we cannot reach, but how we teach ourselves and then teach others can be stepping stone and then can be the floor of somebody because their starting point is much better than what we have faced. Right. We're starting at a certain level and we're gathering all this intelligence, like what we talked about tonight. And that may, hopefully we live many, many years. But if we don't, we reached our, our height of how high we can climb over the, this adversity. And somebody watching this video later can, and they just got a, uh, adversity in their life, an injury or some traumatic event, whatever. They watch this video, and what we just shared with them could be their starting point to building their own house with their own ceiling. So our ceiling, however far we reach tonight or in our lives, somebody else can pick up that torch like in, in a marathon and carry it on from that point. I love it so much, Chris. So I'm in film and TV industry, and there's an organization that I'm, 
very a proud of mem proud member of called Woman in Film Video New England with me. And the organization nonprofit really is to empower women filmmakers and crew that we in the industry not so many women that had paved the way. So we are trying to be a change and then promote more gender equality to the industry. So I feel that what the movement is doing, even like five years ago, like definitely less over women. And then now it's definitely getting more in the industry. I can see that when I'm on a movie set. But then like what you said about the ceiling and then the floor, I think as we talk more and normalize this difficult conversation of breaking through some of the challenges and inequality, discrimination, whatever the topic that we face, think of the next generation and then the gift that we can give so that they can live like warp, like threshold, and then we can have, we can provide better systematic change to them. Right. I mean, we're, we're trying to make this more of a, um, comfortable conversation about adversity. And when we started this, it was very awkward. Uh, not not our interview tonight, but overall for people to talk about adversities in their life. And let's say 10 years from now, it, it's, it's still awkward, but not as much. For somebody who, okay, 20 years from now, and somebody who is born today, 20 years from now, they're going to be at a different starting point than we are when we started this, um, uh, making this more of an accessible conversation so this is we're all building this together for a better world for all of us thank you so much for that so my last question is a gift that came from adversity so what would you say chris what's the gift that came from your adversity well i like to talk about a special gift i got from my visual just uh, adversity i had a white cane before my my ischemic stroke to my spinal cord and that did I was single and that did turn off a lot of women who I was interested in and that hurt but there was one woman that I met who knew about my disability and she didn't care and that was a person I was engaged to when I had my ischemic stroke to my spinal cord now often when you have a life-changing event like that and you're young and you're engaged that sometimes breaks up engagements and it can even break up a wedding or marriage but because of that gift of that disability my visual disability I, I had very little fear that she was going to walk out on me and she didn't so the gift that i got from that adversity of my visual impairment was really the gift of putting the right woman in my life who i needed in my life when i had my spinal cord injury so that was probably the greatest gift that I got from my adversity next to getting to share my story for the people and empower them to um, not let anything in their life define who they are. But my favorite gift is my wife being in my life. And I am so blessed and grateful that she is a part of it. And I believe that disability, my visual disability, that white cane pushed away the women who would not be there for me today. And I'm so grateful for that. It gave me goosebumps to hear that and then I'm so happy you guys met and then you guys are together and then you have shared the life and then I'm sure it's ups and downs but it's like for every other couple but I'm 
grateful for you and then for your wife and Miss Lyons. Make sure Mrs. Lyons that um, maybe she can hear our interview someday too. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe she's watching. Yes, exactly. Well, Chris, thank you very much. Before I close this podcast, I have one request for you, which sure. is if the listener is going through the similar adversity that you went through in your life, what is your biggest advice for them? Don't give up on yourself. You can do it. You can get through this. I mean, I'm not a super, I'm not a superhero. I don't have any superpowers. I'm an average person like anyone else. Uh, I make mistakes. I stumble, I fall, but I always pick myself up and keep pushing forward. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. You can do this. I believe in you. But that's not important if I believe in you. What's important is that you believe in yourself. That's even more important than me believing in you or anyone else in the world. All the people who believe in you, that's great. That will help you. But if you don't believe in yourself, none of that's going to help you as much as self-belief. So believe in yourself. Like I said, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you, Chris. And that's it for the episode 82. And thank you so much for listening to A Gift from Adversity. And then I have more wonderful guests coming into the podcast in the future. So stay tuned and have a wonderful night.